Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. Something new, and I think it's important to talk about in the context of just understanding the narrative of, of Scripture. And, and really, it's something that even me and my wife have modeled our space around, is the intention of creation. All right? Because I think a lot of the times what we realize, if you've read Genesis 1, you just know. You're like, okay, God created man, and then they had to eat the one apple. It's like they had to eat the one thing. Wow, it just got bright quick right there. Bring it, God, more, Father. More, God. But, but I think a lot of the times what we don't realize is then what happens, right, is mankind sins and there's a fall of creation. And then we're all left in the, in the rubble and wreckage of what was intended. And we're like, okay, God, but like, what do we do now? So the Old Testament is God essentially saying, okay, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to kind of find this one person who I'm going to kind of renew an Adam in. And that, would, that person would have been Abraham and the whole kind of Jewish people that would come from him. And then ultimately what, he finds out, what we find out is, okay, that's not going to work either. We need kind of this whole new level of access. And that whole new level of access is Jesus dying to purchase a renewed access to, G- to God. And so what I want to talk about is, is really my, my thing and kind of phrasing is what does it mean to be redeemed creation? Because whether you know it or not, you are creation. You are God's creation. But what does it mean in the aspect of all of us who've, who've lin- lived sinful lives or had things that we've struggled with because obviously nobody is perfect in this fallen world? What does it mean to be redeemed in our creation and then live with intent behind that? And specifically within this, there's this war, right? And I'm going to talk about some, some people, some key people in Scripture, as well as even some writings from Paul this morning, in which what happens is, is these guys are like, okay, we want to live differently, but man, it is so hard. Because we have good intentions, and then we have bad outcomes. Can anybody attest to any of that, right? Incredibly good intentions. But for some reason, bad outcomes still happen. You know, I, I remember this uh, very clearly. The first time I ever got a detention in school, I was uh, voted mis- most mischievous in my senior class. My mom to this day still asks me, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm like, you don't want to know. But, uh, but I remember when I was, um, when I was uh, the first time I ever really got in trouble for something that like called home detention was in middle school. And the best part was, is I had the most pure intentions, but there was a a really bad outcome that came from very pure intention. And what I mean by that is I remember we used to have before, at gym class, we would, they would kind of um, allow all of us before the bell would ring, you'd have, or after the bell would ring, you'd have 10 minutes to kind of get changed into your gym outfit. Why? Because all the dudes, we all know, like, we didn't need to change into our gym outfits. We was born ready for gym class. Right, And if you weren't one of those guys, that's okay. But I was born ready for enough gym class for 12 dudes. And so I remember I, I like had kind of, I, I was like, I never really changed into my clothes because I was just always strapped for gym. And, and I'm like ready and dodgeball, whatever it was, I was going to absolutely sweat and then just ax body spray myself the rest of the day and be fine. 
Any of us had that? No? Just, no? Okay, good. No? <laughs> yeah, just... <laughs> It's like we had the backpacks with the water bottle things in the back. It's like I had two Axe body sprays in there. <laughs> Didn't even carry water, just Axe. It's like that's not even deodorant the bars yet either. I had four of those too. It's like in the top of the locker, like behind the books. Nobody sees it. You just kind of... <laughs> So I remember we're like, we're in gym class and I'm like, I'm super excited for gym. And all of a sudden I hear blood curdling screams coming from the girls locker room, blood curdling. And I mean, there is just a stream of girls running out of the girls locker room. And immediately my heroic self literally springs into action and just darts into the girls bathroom. (laughs) Now, now obviously the girls bathroom and locker room is, is. Uh, there's over a hundred girls in there getting ready for gym class the first 10 minutes changing period so I remember (laughs) I run in and I round the corner into the girls bathroom because all I can hear is just screaming like bloody murder and all of a sudden I round the corner and my friend stops me and she says Micah what are you doing in here and I said is something wrong and she said it's just a spider And I immediately am like, oh crap. I run out the door and my gym teacher is literally in front of the door. Because he, he heard the screams too. And so I know it's a spider, but he sees me come out and he's like, oh, this is why they were screaming. We got this rando weirdo running up in the girls changing area. And all these girls are so immediately right to the office. I'm trying to explain. No, don't worry. I wasn't trying to. And it's like, yeah, you're a middle school boy. I know what you was trying to do. It's like, I'm like, I'm like trying to like explain myself. And some of the girls have my back, but it's just not enough. Calls my parents and I get a detention. It's funny. And my mom like, what were you thinking? And I'm like thinking in my heart, I'm like, I was trying to save the literal day. And instead, what happened is my intention, right? My intention had a negative outcome. And I believe a lot of us, we, we, none of us would admit, man, I have terrible intentions, right? None of us would say that. And if you would come up after, we'll pray for you with like 23 people, (laughs) right? My goal is for us to realize that all of us, I believe, have good intentions. But why is it that we we have good intentions, but we still have bad outcomes? And specifically what we find it and what makes me feel really, really good about uh, this sermon is because I realize in the Bible, this is something that in creation people have struggled with ever since the fall of man. Good intentions, bad outcomes. How is it that we can refine those intentions to change some of those outcomes? Because I believe for a lot of us, we, as life goes on, just start to succumb to the reality that we have good intentions, but sometimes life just happens. Sometimes this is just who we are. Sometimes we just can't change. Sometimes it's just too hard. Sometimes I just don't really want to get uncomfortable. I don't want to open myself up to change. I don't want to allow somebody in that could be a healing balm upon my soul. I don't really want to apply myself to the revelation knowledge that can change who I am. See, this is the intended part of your creation is to come into contact with the Redeemer and see the Redeemer redeem. 
Something we say here all the time, right, is that our goal is to create a place where our, we, we restore the gaze of humanity, the, the eyes of us upon him, and then the creator creates. See, a lot of the times I think we have good intentions, but what's happening is we're not looking at the creator to create, we're looking upon ourselves to create, and those good intentions in a fallen world will have fallen outcomes. But when the creator is where the intentions are birthed from. He is what everything is built on. He is the focus, the pursuit. He's the ingredients and he's the end product. When these things happen, the creator will create. But it's about our ability to assess that maybe our intentions are our own intentions. And that's why we're having the outcomes we're having. So what I want to do, though, is like I said, I think a foundational passage that makes me feel good about the fact that I still sin and I still make mistakes is Paul writing in Romans 7, 14 to 20. Now, this is hilarious because I think a lot of the times what we do is we look at the we look at scripture and what happens is, is we look at it and we can't put ourselves in the understanding. This passage of scripture is hilarious because it is Paul verbally processing the fact that he continues to screw up. Even being one of the most holy people on the face of the earth in that day, he's writing something that is so profound to glean into that I think it will make us feel better, but not just make us feel better, add clarity as we continue in, in the, to the next text. It says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Right? So the law is spiritual, but what does it mean to, to somebody who lives in the flesh that has been born into the bondage of sin in this world? For what am I doing? I do not understand. I love this because this is the verbal processing part, right? I have had many, many conversations with people who have made mistakes, and this is almost exactly what's coming out of their mouth. For what am I doing? I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do. I am trying to get a spider out of the bathroom. I'm not trying to be a creep. But I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present, but the doing of good is not. This is the foundation of this morning. The willing is present, but the doing is not. Verse 19, for the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now, obviously, I could spend the entirety of the Sunday talking about this, and there would still be layers of, like, I don't understand. Let's just chalk this up to the fact that he is verbally processing the fact that, man, I do not know why I have good intentions and bad outcomes. I do not understand. I know I've been born into this world, but I'm either producing sin or I'm producing a, a, this, the law that is not the spirit that I'm called to do. And he's like wading through what all of us have felt. God, why is it that I that I want to do good and my intentions are good. 
but I still have bad outcomes. How is it that our God can redeem us? How is it that our God can transform the intention of creation to not just have good intentions, but have good outcomes? Specifically, what I'm going to talk about today is Solomon. And Solomon's name means peace in the Old Testament. And I know we talked about Romans, but I just love the, the, this particular kind of emphasis I'm going to put on Solomon's story. Because if you know anything about Solomon, you know that he's the wisest man in all of Scripture. How do we know this? In 1 Kings uh, chapter 3, it actually says that Solomon offers 1,000 burnt offerings. And in that place of 1,000 burnt offerings, what happens is, is God shows up to him and says, hey... Because of your father and his holiness and my covenant with him, and as well as the fact that you just took the time to offer up a thousand animals. Now, some of us, like, I, I love when, like, Christians we read, we're like, oh, a thousand burnt offerings. Like, no offense. If I came up here and was like, hey, today we're doing a thousand burnt offerings. Like, all of us would be like, got brunch plans. <laughs> See you next week because you're probably going to still be going. <laughs> Right, God shows up and he's like, okay, a thousand burnt offerings. Man, this guy's serious. Not only do I have a covenant with his father, not only have, have I had intimacy with him, but I see the devotion and the seriousness in which he possesses. And what happens, right? Is he, God says, you have one thing you can ask of me and I'll give you whatever that is. And what is that one thing? He asks for wisdom. And specifically in the, in the NASB, it actually says that he asks for an understanding heart. Which I love that because understanding and wisdom both have similarities, but I feel like understanding is wisdom with empathy. So he's essentially saying, God, give me a heart like yours that understands people and that can love them through whatever they're going through. God, so intrigued by this response, looks at him and says, man, because you have asked for this, it shows me the depths of your heart. That you didn't ask for wisdom, riches, honor, or authority, but rather you, you have a heart after me. You know what? I'm going to give you wisdom, riches, honor, and authority. If you were to break down the net worth of what Solomon was, in today's terms, it would be well over a trillionaire. But not only that, if you actually research, see, back then precious metals were the currency. It says that Solomon had so much gold that any time there was silver or bronze given to him, which once again, these commodities in those days are the currency, they literally would just throw them out behind the castle. In his day and age, silver was just like a rock that you would see on the sidewalk. See, this is how wealthy he becomes. A heart of wisdom, understanding, one that, that knows no bounds. See, Solomon is an incredible man of God until his later days, where his intentions start producing bad outcomes. Let's read, it says this, 1 Kings 11, 1 through verse 8, and this is Solomon at the end of his life. It says this, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite. See, it's listing these women, and what you have to realize is this. If you know anything about when the children of Israel step into the promised land, what's one command is God essentially says is, hey, don't marry, out, don't intermarry with the tribes that don't have the covenant I do because they worship other gods. So Solomon 
His first marriage, that's why it's listed in chronological order, he marries Pharaoh's daughter from Egypt, which immediately is a no-no. Like, no offense, I'm like, okay, I've heard about my ancestors being enslaved for 400 years. I think I should marry his daughter. Right? That's, that would be like a red flag to me. It's like, maybe not a good idea. But he te- takes it a step further. And what you have to realize is some of the most common enemies of Israel, the Moabite and the Ammonite, they are products of incest. I mean, the wickedness that is permeated throughout these, these tribes is really the reason God's saying, hey, stay away from them, because that wickedness will get on you. Your intention may be pure where you marry in order to produce peace for your people, but I'm promising you this, it will stain your spirit. So what happens? Let's keep reading. Verse 2, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate, you shall have no associate, they shall have no association with you, for they will surely turn your hearts away from the gods. Solomon then held fast to those in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not, if you've been here for a while, you know this one, wholly devoted. Do you see the spelling there? It's not H-O-L-Y, it's W-H-O-L-L-Y. What does that mean? The whole of his humanity is not devoted to the whole of knowing God. So what happens, right, is then what we see is there's an absolute breakdown that happens. Verse 5, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, which in the Old Testament, if you study it all, this is the foundational kind of um, deity that produces Asherah poles that people would, would bow down to. It says the, the goddess of the Sidians and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem. And this one is the most interesting to me. And for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. If you research in the Old Testament, Moloch was one of the most grotesque. You know Baal, which a lot of the times had just a sexual impurity attached, but Moloch was child sacrifice. This, this idol, literally, for, for once a year, there would be ceremonies of child sacrifice. This is how far Solomon has fallen. Verse 8, thus he also did for all his foreign wives, burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. Now what's interesting about this passage is you guys obviously know, okay, well, this didn't end up well. And because of the heart that God has for Solomon, he essentially says, hey, just so you know, this kingdom will be ripped from your hands. And it will be fractured and fragmented. And immediately after his death, his son assumes kingship and essentially disregards all of the advice of the elders on behalf of his young friends and then splinters the kingdom. And it never regains the glory it had during King David and Solomon's time. But what's fascinating to me is Proverbs. Because Proverbs, what we see is Solomon's making all of these writings and not only is he making these writings, we can see that he's, he has a depth to his humanity that is very different 
than really anybody up to this point in scripture. That wisdom is actually true. That he had an understanding spirit. He had a wisdom associated. But what's fascinating to me is Proverbs chapter 7. Which if you know, there's, there's 31 chapters in Proverbs, but specifically what you'll find is that Proverbs 7 is more in the earlier days of Solomon's reign. So we can kind of attribute the fact that he's got this wisdom and understanding in God. And he writes this, and I want you to listen from the aspect of knowing what we just previously talked about. We just previously talked about, right, that he made all kinds of mistakes, was an absolute idiot, and allowed all of his wives to turn his heart from God, and it fragmented his entire kingdom. But listen to what he wrote in Proverbs 7. It says this, my son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. This is Solomon writing on behalf of his son's letters of direction. Keep my commandments and live, and my teaching as the apple to your eye. Skipping down to verse 7. And I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. Passing through the street near her corner, and he walks along to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle night, and in the darkness, and behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a prostitute and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, in the public squares, and lurks by every corner. I have spread my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink our fill of love until the morning. Let's delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him, and at the full moon he will come home. With her many persuasions she entices. With her flattering lips she seduces. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. As one who walks in ankle bracelets to the discipline of a fool. Until an arrow pierces his liver. As a bird hurries to the snare. So he does not know it will cost him his life. Let's think about this. What is the end of Solomon's life? Women that lead him to destruction. What is Solomon writing about in Proverbs 7? Women that will lead him to destruction. Isn't it interesting that the knowledge and the wisdom that he possessed in the early days is the very thing that he failed in in the latter days? And what I'm saying to you today is this, is we can have good intentions for a season and be redeemed in our personhood and creation for a season, but there is something we have to do daily, and it is the renewing of our mind and the communing with our Creator, or else we will end up like this. See, we don't graduate from challenge. We don't graduate from temptation. We don't graduate from a fallen world in in which we will address sin daily and have to walk out in the opposite spirit of what our flesh craves. We do not live an existence in which we will be completely divinely elevated above all things that could ever make us stumble. No, we don't. We live in all of those things. And though God dealt with temptation and learned obedience through the things that he suffered, it says in Hebrews, there is something about us that we have to do to make sure our intentions are good and our outcomes are good. And so what I want to do with my remaining time is this, is talk about how to live out the intent of God's creation for you. Just want to give four quick things. How do you live out 
God's intent for you. Where it's not just good intentions, but it's good outcomes. And the first thing is this. Are we a Christian in today's terms or in Christ of the epistle standards? What's wild and and fascinating both at the same time is that Christian is only used three times within the epistles from Acts to Revelation. The term in Christ is used over 180 times in that same aspect. So what I'm challenging you to do today is this. Assess, am I a Christian? Which is very easy to say yes to. And then also say, am I in Christ? Because even saying it, there's a different standard that you have to answer to. Even mumbling it like, man, am I in Christ? See, it's one thing to say, yeah, I'm a Christian today. But it's another thing to say, yes, I am in Christ. And I think that that is the thing. If you were to ask Solomon in his kind of final breaths, is right, is he is a, what we would classify as a Christian but what we also know is that in that verse 4 of that, of, it says he was not wholly devoted to him. So what am I saying? Raise your standard. Not from whatever Western American theology has taught us Christianity is. But to an epistle standard of what in Christ means. Carrying the cross. Loving the neighbor. Communing in community and with the Father. See, these things, these elements of being in Christ are so much deeper than this surface level term that we utter today of Christianity. No, I want to be somebody who's in Christ because I can promise you this. When I'm in Christ, it's not about intentions. It's about holy outcome. The second thing is this. There is a distinct difference in knowing something and doing the thing we know. You know what's interesting about Solomon is that we only have 31 of his Proverbs, but what we do have, and it says this in 1 Kings chapter 4, 32, it actually says that Solomon writes over 1,000 songs and 3,000 Proverbs. We've got 31 of his 3,000. What do we know about him? He knows a lot. He knows a lot. But there's a difference between knowing and doing. He's the wisest man to ever live. How could he be the one who knows everything and yet still comes up short? And I want to challenge you on this because I believe in the church today and in our faith today, we pursue knowledge more than we pursue intimacy. And there's a distinct difference between the two. Knowledge, the knowledge that puffs up an intimacy, one that makes people recognize that they've been with God. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is in Acts 4.13. And it's as these religious leaders are assessing Peter and John as this, this revival is breaking out on their streets. It says this, now they observe the confidence of Peter and John. I love that, confidence. See, we can, we can go all, I can go all day on pride and confidence because there is a godly confidence that we must possess and not allow ourselves to be beat into the ground. But it says this, they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood one uneducated, untrained. But they were amazed and began to recognize they'd been with Jesus. 
What am I trying to say today is I think a lot of us, what we're focusing on is knowing something and not the doing of the something. And the knowing of something is, God, I'm going to read all these books and inhale all your word and all of these things. And what we can do is we can talk about the knowledge we possess. But when we do come into contact with that presence of God in which it transforms our spirit and our soul, when we in engross ourselves in the humanity of who our Savior was. See, there is no quantifiable or measurable increment in which we can radically say, okay, this person is intimate. It is just something that you look at and you go, man, I know they're uneducated and they're untrained, but that person's been with Jesus. See, that's the new standard of today. Not the people who know everything, but the people who have spent the hours with God over and over and saying, Jesus, would you transform me? Yes, with your word, but also with your spirit and your presence. May I not be somebody who knows so much that I forget that knowing is always unto doing. The third thing, and this is something I think a lot of us need to understand. The waiting game is the enemy's most successful tactic against you. He will wait for your weakest moment, targeting your weakest area, and he will wait for the perfect timing. 1 Kings 11.4, now when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away. He'd spend decades walking with God, decades being with God. He literally had the presence of God show up and say, what can I give you? And then give it to him. He has seen everything that you could ever want for confirmation that God is real and he's the greatest thing we could pursue. How is it that he could walk away? The perfect timing, the perfect moment, the perfect temptation, all crafted by the deceiver. See, a lot of us, right, we're on a season right now where even if you can attest and say, man, I'm on fire for God. I've never felt this before. It's incredible. Or we're on the other side of the spectrum where we're like, man, I feel like I'm getting beat over the head every day with temptation. You're in a perfect time for the enemy to just come after you. Because if he can rip the roots out before the fruits start to take shape, then that's easy to get you away from. But what's wild is this is. For people who have had the fruit and people who do have the root, what happens is is he's going to target a period of drought, dryness, isolation. Bring people around who can maybe draw you away from, oh, well, that's extreme. You don't have to do that. Or, oh, you know, that doesn't really matter, does it? You just have, you got, you're fine. And Solomon, his heart slowly drifts away from God Not because he didn't know the things of God, but rather, I believe, because he didn't do the things of God that he knew he should have. And see, that's the thing. We can never get so far down the line of knowing that we stop doing because it will only be a matter of time before God says, okay, I don't want somebody who knows me. I want somebody who consistently and habitually does things with me. And that's where... Once again, the challenge of, okay, God, I want to be, I want to produce good outcomes because I have good intentions. God says, okay, don't just be a knower, be a doer. And the last thing is this, your fulfillment in Christ will come down to your personal diligence and dependence through life seasons. 
I want to say this to you. We are not pursuing a new faith, rather an ancient one with a new set of eyes. That we don't profess to be people who have this new anything at all, but rather, God, would you open our eyes to see the ancient, to see the sacred, and to implement it in our day and age in which it is no longer ancient and it's not just sacred. It is something that is a part of who we are. I would like to say this as well because I think diligence is something, right? In Hebrews 11, it actually says he's a rewarder. 11.6, I believe. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And actually, I wrote down and did a little research on that. The Greek word for reward is mesthopatetes. And what it is, is it's actually a picture of the man who pays wage at the end of the day. So as, as Hebrews, as it's written out, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What he's doing is he's bringing a picture of the person that, you, that pays you at the end of a day's long work. And he's saying, essentially, God is not just somebody who's like, oh, there's a reward for you in heaven. No, I will pay you on this earth. But even more than that, I want to share this because this has become more real to me in this season than ever before. And I believe that for some of us, the reason we feel distant from God is because we don't genuinely have a dependence on him. And I'm going to say this about my life and the greatest revelation that I've had as a church planner and somebody who moved cross country just on a whim of faith is this. As my dependency increases, so too my feeling of closeness Could it be that the reason he doesn't feel near is because I have stopped depending or needing to depend on him? Every single day in where me and my wife are at in our walk with the Lord is we are in such a level of dependence that I, if I do not have the nearness of God, I will absolutely break down. (laughs) Why? Because as we try, as we're trying to build this church, there's so much that I have to cast onto him. God, if it's a building, all right, the building. Okay, God, I know you're going to provide financially. I know you're going to provide the building. I know you're going to provide leaders. I know you're going to provide capacity. I know you're going to provide for the long term. I know you're going to provide for the short term. I know that your presence is going to mark this place, but sometimes it feels like I'm lacking in that. God, I know that the word is going to come from you because if it doesn't and this thing crumbles, I've got nothing left. See, there's something about dependency that raises the awareness of need and in that place of raised awareness, there is a fortitude established of, okay, God, it is all on you and I will pursue you because you are my all as well. See, this is where Solomon was as he stepped up to take the stage and the reins of kingship from his father. What he was grappling with when he said, God, give me understanding and wisdom is God, I cannot do this without you. There was a dependency that produced a product that he could have never developed on his own because he was so rooted in the need for God in his existence. What happened later in life? There was no longer any dependency, so therefore there was no longer any need to do anymore. And I'll say this, in our culture today, we don't depend on God much. And what happens is is when we do need to depend on God, most of the time we're angry that we have to start depending on God. Because we've just been taught the theology of control where, yes, our God loves us and cares for us and has a plan for us. But what if we realize that Jeremiah 29, 11, the one everybody quotes, oh, I know the plans I have for you to prosper you, to give you hope in a future, is literally written to a people in bondage. 
It's literally written to a nation that has been uprooted, transplanted, and put in a secular society that is degrading and castrating their men. And he's saying, oh, don't worry. I've got a plan for you. Prosper you. I'll give you hope in the future. See, I think a lot of us, what we want is we want diligence, but we don't want dependency. And I'm going to say this to you today. The greatest awareness you'll ever have of God is when you become so dependent on his voice and his intervention. And then he comes through that you realize there is no other king you could follow and there is no other Lord you could profess. See, this is, this is the goal of being in Christ, is it's not just about us developing a controlled mechanism in which our lives can be more comfortable. Being in Christ is God, I will build my life so on you that anything that I have on my own will not make it. It must be you who determines and decides. God comes where he's needed. Dependency on Christ is when you position yourselves to always be in need. Always believing in him, communicating with him, and hoping for his intervention. And then when he does, it is confirmation to your existence. And when he does, and there's an uncomfortable dependence that becomes rewarded with true fulfillment... That is only found when you catch a glimpse of heaven on your earth. You want the deepest level of fulfillment in Christ? Don't just be diligent, but start with that. But be dependent. And as he comes through from your diligence and dependency, as he continues to make a way where there wasn't a way, open doors that you never thought would be open, bring people you never thought he would bring, all of a sudden what happens is is there's a fulfillment of, oh, my God really does see. He does know. And he does love. Let's stand to our feet. If you've been here any length of time, you know that I just type up a prayer of the sermon and profess it over us. So whatever your posture for receiving is, I pray that this prayer meets you where you are. Father, restore to me today the redeemed intention when you created me. Not the sin I would struggle with, not the failures that I would feel, not the brokenness and distance I sometimes equate with you. No, Restore to me the intention of your creation. To walk with you, to be with you, to love you, to sense you, to feel you. I do not want the knowledge just of you without the intimacy of you, nearness, closeness. I choose to believe in a God who is with me, for me, and an ever-present help in times of trouble. May I center my life around being in Christ. May it be said of me that I did what I knew. And I was diligent and dependent through the seasons and the color changes of life. May my faith run deeper than the surface I try to hide behind. 
May it impact those I sometimes wish to run from. And may I know you like the people I wish I had in my corner that really were just replacements for the relationship you had intended for me. One with you and you alone. Take me back to the purpose of that garden to tend, to keep, to have dominion over. But these things only come from the order of first being obedient to you. Establish in me today that level of obedience and reverence so that I may tend, keep, and practice kingdom dominion over an earth craving an existence outside of our own. Would you breathe into the dust again? Would you breathe into the dust of me and bring forth life and life everlasting in Jesus name.